Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in. In this episode, we talk with Coulter Ellis, Assistant Professor of Sociology and the Center for Rural Studies at Sam Houston State University. His specialty areas include social psychology, qualitative and ethnographic methods, gender, and environmental sociology. Professor Ellis recently published a piece in the Sociological Quarterly called Boundary Labor and the Production of Emotionless Commodities, the Case of Beef Production. We discuss his methodological and theoretical approach in working with cattle producers in the United States. Ellis, who recently published a piece in the Sociological Quarterly, studies how cattle producers balance their connection to keeping animals alive while also sending them to slaughter. So, Coulter, how did you conduct this study and gain access to these types of places and people? In any kind of ethnographic or qualitative research, you know, personal identity is always really important. So, one of the ways that I, I think that I got in is uh, I talked, you know, I'm from Idaho originally. Uh, I have family who are involved in beef production, and I think that that really put uh, a lot of people at ease a little bit uh, who maybe would have otherwise been more skeptical or, or less likely less likely to talk to me. Mm-hmm. But on top of that, I also think that the people that I interviewed had something to say, and I, and I think that they really liked the opportunity to sit down with somebody who was interested in their work, interested in what they did, wanted to hear sort of about what they do. One of the other things that was also really important as my research went on, I did a lot of tours of slaughterhouses and spent a lot of time on feedlots and in some places that can be really tough, especially for people who haven't necessarily been around agriculture a lot and animal agriculture a whole lot. Uh, So especially after my, my trip to a slaughterhouse, I stopped eating meat. And at least for for a little while, I had a really hard time continuing to eat meat and I went vegan for a little while. But that really complicated a lot of my field work because I would go out and I would be really far from home and I would spend full days with people and we would have meals together. And so one of the things that I that I ended up really doing was really confronting this thing of like, you know, do I eat do I eat the hamburger that they're serving me? Of course I do. Um, you know, but then sort of confronting some of my own sort of ethical ideas and, and sort of as my uh, my sense of um, animal ethics changed as the project went on, you know, I had that was something that I had to confront as well. And I always I always ate everything that they served me, um, but it was something that I that I really had to confront. Yeah. So you did go into lots of areas that were, you know, not very traditional for sociologists and um <laughs> You know, can you tell us just a little bit more about the kind of people you talked to and the kind of places you were visiting? Sure. So I did all of my interviews in sort of the, the western United States, the Intermountain West in particular. Um, so Wyoming, Idaho, Colorado. Uh, and I went to some, what always struck me, and it was just how open and beautiful, even though a lot of the places weren't necessarily um, iconically beautiful. It was just always an amazing place to go out and to be amongst the animals and 
you know, with lots of sky and lots of area. And, you know, it felt oftentimes it felt a lot like a lot, a lot like home actually. Mm-hmm. And, um, the people that I talked to were always, first of all, they were always surprisingly open to talking with me. I was always really pleased. I, at the onset of the, of the project, I was talking with some advisors and some other people who had done research with beef producers. And there was a lot of skepticism as to whether or not I could get anybody to talk with me. But really, that wasn't the case at all. Um, especially once they, I, I think actually, I always played up a little bit that I was from Idaho and that I was mm-hmm. a student, and that always goes a long way. Right. Um, but they were always really willing to talk with me, and always really um, willing, and just really kind and giving with their time, and just a lot of fun. Yeah. So let's talk more about what you've learned out there. So part of your your piece um, describes cattle producers as utilizing connections and then disconnections in their work. So can you kind of talk us through that and give us some examples of those concepts? Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things I think that always comes to mind is that the coexistence of seemingly contradictory emotions uh, is not really very foreign to many of us. I mean, I think that in our everyday lives, there are people that we love and sometimes we love them and sometimes we really have a hard time with them, right? <laughs> right. And so it's the, the coexistence of, of these feelings that really appear, I think, especially to outsiders as fundamentally contradictory are not always as contradictory as we might think mm-hmm. uh, or they might appear at first, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the examples that comes to mind, and I, and I talk about this person uh, in the paper, is I, I call him Travis, which of course is a, a pseudonym. But Travis and I, Travis invited me out to his place, and it was really, it was like, you know, an eight-hour drive from uh, my home at mm-hmm. the time. And I showed up on his place, and he w- he I parked sort of as obvious as I could, and there was nobody home, and he kind of came by in his tractor, you know. Mm-hmm. And he opened the cab door and I, and I jumped in the tractor and we sort of started driving. And he was this really big, bearded, I mean, in a lot of ways, very, I mean, I, I want to say hyper-masculine, but I, I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, but he's yeah. just like, just really like iconic masculine guy, right? big voice. And, <laughs> and at first he was really, I, and I think that he was a little intimidated by me and I was a little in, intimidated by him and and at first we were having these conversations and yeah he was talking I think very brashly about cattle and talking very um very coarsely I think about uh animal welfare issues and I kind of noted that but as we spent more time together and you know I noticed that you know he would sort of go in between sort of overt sort of expressions of disconnection. It's like, oh, you know, the only people that are connected to animals are, you know, the ones that only have a couple, you know, like Mm -hmm. when you have a big herd like I have, you don't feel those same kinds of connections and so forth. Uh, But then later in the day, and it was really actually, we'd spent most of the, most of a full day together. And he took me back to his, uh, we went back to his house and he's like, well, I got to go, I got to go feed my bottle calf. And I was like, oh, okay. And so we went over to his grandmother's house, who was, you know, really just really close to him. And we went into her kitchen. And at this time, the interview was over and we were just chit-chatting. I, I think that we were just, just talking about football. I mean, we were yeah. just kind of, you know, shooting the bull. And 
and he starts mixing um, a formula in this in this really nice kitchen in a KitchenAid mixer, which I remember noting, like being like, "Oh wow, that's a nice mixer." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and he and he's kind of he's and we're just and he's just doing this, and we're just we're just talking, and then he you know he takes the you know the stainless steel bowl out of the mixer and he pours it into a bucket. Um, which is, you know, fitted with, you know, basically a, a nipple, right? Mm-hmm. And and we walk out the back door and across the yard and across the back drive and into the barn. And here comes this calf, just uh, just clearly affectionate, I guess, is the way to uh, to describe it. The, mm-hmm. the cat, or the calf, comes you know, trotting up to Travis and rubs up against his leg, you know, very much like a, like a cat would and. And Travis hangs the um, the bucket on a on a nail on the wall, and the the calf starts to to feed. And Travis, this guy who was this really hyper masculine guy, uh, who told me you know all the time that he doesn't feel these connections, and then he starts telling me about this animal and how he cares about this animal and how you know what happened with the animal's mother and why he has to do this and in this really clear emotional connection yeah and so this idea that there are these connections and there's these disconnections is just was really interesting to me and really intriguing and and of course it's it's gendered in important ways Mm -hmm. um you know women were a lot more forthcoming about feelings of emotional connection than the men were um but really what Travis, I think, taught me one of the things that that we were talking about is that he had to learn to understand his emotions in a way that didn't interfere with the production process. Right. Uh, that he had to, uh, he did have these feelings towards all of his animals. As the as the interview went on, you know, he he talked really sentimentally about all of his animals, uh, but he had to frame that in a way that was not going to interfere or get in the way of his ability to really ultimately treat those animals as commodities, trade them uh, to feedlots, and then, of course, ultimately to uh, to slaughter. And really, ranchers' ability to do this um, is really important. It's not something I think most of us are, are capable of doing, or, or mo- it's not something that most of us currently have the emotional skills to do that ranchers have these emotional skills and people who work in in agriculture have these emotional skills and they do this work as a way to produce these goods that I couldn't I would be unprepared to do and that's really what uh that's really what I'm getting at uh with my concept of boundary labor right and that leads us right to our next question so boundary labor is something we hear about um in other labor realms um, that sociologists study. So give us some background on the concept. Where else has it been applied? And then how do you use it in your work? Sure. Well, I'm really, with this with this concept, I, I really, I, I guess I'm really influenced by Laura Nader's idea of studying up. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, boundary labor is a way to frame the work that goes into maintaining uh, emotional separation between consumers and the exploitated the exploitation that needs to um, that's needed to produce goods. So as I sit in my office today, right, I I think about my clothing, right. So uh, my my clothing is put together in a sweatshop, if you want to call it that, or or at least in conditions that are very 
I would be very uncomfortable asking somebody else to work in. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have some really serious moral uh, moral problems, okay? Uh, but somebody somebody has to be there, right? Somebody has to have these people work, and somebody has to interact with people who work in exploitative contexts, whether that's you know whether that's producing clothes or something else. And I think we have a tendency to frame that person as some sort of villain, um, as some sort of, you know, bad person. And I think that that's one of the things that my work with beef producers, at least for me, sort of points to is that that's a, that's a mistake. Um, it's a mistake to put people, to assume that these people have no sorts of connection to even to the people who they exploit. And in fact, you know, we do really horrible things to people that we profess to love all the time. It, well, maybe not all the time, but you know, right? So, yeah. but we we do we do terrible things to to people that right. we we care about all the time, whether yeah. those are family members or uh, or otherwise. And for ranchers, bound my conceptualization of boundary labor, at least, isn't about dealing isn't so much about dealing with the coexistence of seemingly contradictory feelings, whether we're talking about connections or disconnections. It's about making both of those feelings, the connections and the disconnections, feel as though they're part of a natural process, mm-hmm. as though it could be no other way. Um, and to do this, uh, I sort of draw on this idea of a sort of a three-part narrative that I put within boundary labor um, that uh, – really kind of constitutes what I call emotional tools or an emotional toolkit. Right. And so talk us through what those, what those three categories are. Okay, sure. Well, so there's three um, that I come up with that I think are really useful for understanding uh, the way that beef producers approach their work. There's what I call responsibility, dominion, and the cycle. Right. So responsibility really intersects. I mean, this one is very, very gendered. And the, the process as a whole is very gendered. But this is a very masculine sort of provider and protector narrative. Um, ranchers will talk about it, you know, their job. Their job is to protect, um, is to provide the animals, to provide cattle with food, with protection, um, and to protect the health of the animals. And you know, as somebody who's from, you know, the Intermountain West and Idaho in particular, this is, I think, one of the big controversies around around wolves is that it's not just the monetary value of the animals. Um, so when when with the reintroduction of wolves, right, there's been, you know, predation, you know, they, they feed on on livestock. But it's it's not just that's not just an economic loss, but that's also sort of a failure because it's the producer's responsibility to protect those animals and to keep them from that kind of uh, that kind of predation, but it's not just a responsibility that uh, producers have to the animals. The animals also have a responsibility to the producers, right? So it's the animals' responsibility to provide calves, um, so the calves and other bodies that can help the ranch stay viable, and so. Within this narrative, ranchers sort of frame what they're doing as um, mutually beneficial, that it's good for them because they get to, you know, continue to, you know, make money and to provide provide for themselves and their family. Right. But they, they're also protecting the animals. So they have this responsibility to the animals and the animals have responsibility to them as, essentially to, uh, you know, in exchange for the protection and the food and the health. Yeah. Um, they sacrifice uh, years of their lives, basically, 
to um, in in that kind of agreement. And so this is part of a narrative that is really common um, amongst many of the ranchers that I talked with. But within that also is what I what I call dominion. And dominion is this sort of Judeo Christian ethic, I guess. If you, it's not necessarily that, but it basically is this idea that God or or some sort of higher authority gives people gives people this responsibility to look after the animals. But it also gives them the moral authority to use those animal bodies for their own ends. And so dominion and the narrative of dominion is really a justification for the many of the that that sort of bi-directional responsibility that both the producers and the animals have. And then sort of the, the third narrative is this idea of the cycle, which is sort of my favorite one, I guess, yeah, yeah. because it's not about for for producers, it's not about meat that the animals are should be animal welfare is not about the animals always being happy but it's about you know because there are some things that are present in beef production that are really unsightly that are really difficult to look at and really difficult to do even for uh, people who are you know seasoned professionals and have been doing this for a long time so this idea of the cycle is the idea that while it's sad to say goodbye to animals sometimes it can be sad to you know say goodbye to that calf that was my bottle calf you know and to send that animal to feedlots and you know and a lot of the a lot of the ranchers were had very complicated feelings about feedlots so it it, you know that that can be that can be a sad thing but you always have something else coming back around so while that's the end of the cycle the beginning of the cycle the, the the what they call calving season which is when um, you know, all of the new, you know, baby calves are born. They would always talk about what a wonderful time that was. And and even though it was a really labor intensive moment, it was something that they really looked forward to year round because it was just, they got a lot of satisfaction and a lot of joy out of it. Right. So really they, they, the cycle sort of allows them this, this feeling of connection of, you know, seeing something and finishing it, finishing it through, it was kind of life through death. And, to them, at least that feels as though it's a very natural process and that it's something that in a lot of ways could be no other way. And so I want to talk about sort of what these three narratives do together. Is sure. These narratives help the ranchers produce a feeling that production is, is natural, that it could be no other ways, and that they do this for consumers. Um, mm-hmm. So people who consume the goods that are derived from those animal bodies, and that's you know that's food, but that's also a number of other goods. Um, they do that because in a lot of ways, we as consumers, and I include myself in this, are unprepared emotionally to have a connection or to raise an animal and to bottle feed an animal and to mother an animal and to care for this animal, but also treat that animal as a commodity. That's something that for most of us seems unimaginable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but this is something that producers by the nature of their work, they have to be very skilled at. And, and certainly in many cases they are. Yeah. A lot of sociologists study only humans. And you are someone who incorporates animal and human relationships into your work, both in this project and in your other work. You know, how did you land there and what are some of the challenges and then some of the benefits you get from this type of approach? Mm. Well, I, 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 I love the opportunity to respond to this question, actually. So one of the things that I think is that sociologists study human, non-human 
issues or interactions all the time. Yeah. You know, whether we're talking about humans' use of technology, the environment, or, you know, like Goffman talks about props in the, in the presentation of self. I mean, these are all non-human human interactions. So in a lot of ways, I don't actually see the study of, of animals in society as that much of a radical departure from mainstream sociology. But it, it does, though, I think, bring our attention more directly to ideas about society as really more than human, um, that society is not just something that is comprised of people, but is something that's comprised of technology and the non-human fundamentally. Uh, and our relationships with animals really allow us to be human in very specific ways, whether that's um, you know, food or culture or materials, you know, I, I look around, you know, and, you know, animal products are in the glue that holds the carpet and the tile down. It's in the, the sheetrock, you know, that's, mm -hmm. you know, these non-human beings are, they're in my stomach, you know, within the enzymes that break down my food that allow me to live. So all of these, all of these non-human things are, are happening all the time within this frame. If we understand our relationships with animals, it can tell us something really fundamental about who we are. And so through studying animals and how we treat animals, we're really studying something more broad about society as a whole. Mm -hmm. And it provides us an opportunity, I think, to look at some really distasteful things. I mean, animal slaughter is, is an ugly process. I don't care how long you've been around it. It's not a huge departure, I don't think, for me. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, many of the social processes that help make that happen are very similar to the social processes that help make the exploitation of other people happen as well. So that's really one of the reasons that I think the study of animals is, is so important. Excellent. Well, Coulter, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's and been we, an honor. We really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks.